We welcome you to the Truth Simply Put, our broadcast and teaching series at the Basilea Commission. You're about to receive God's unadulterated word, brought to you by Pastor Alexander Victor. Challenging, uplifting, and provoking you to new dimensions in your kingdom walk. And now, today's message. How can it be fair for one man to bear upon him the sins of the whole world when the same Bible says that I shall not visit the iniquity of you or on anybody else or on your fathers. Everyone shall pay for his own sin. So how will God say that and then now put all the sin of the world on one man? But until you understand what Paul means when he said that you died with him. So in the one man dying, everybody paid for his sin. In the one who paid for our sins. Does that make sense? So you're forgiven, you are pardoned. But what is the legal charter? What is the legal ramification of your pardon? How do we, how can we just look at you and say, you know what, you're just free? It introduces the word justification. And justification is an act of God by which he what? Reckons you as righteous. And because he reckons you righteous, he starts to see you as righteous. And because he starts to see you as righteous, you are righteous. Does that make sense? Justification is how God sees you as righteous because he reckons you righteous. Your sins are forgiven, paid for, redeemed, whatever it is, great. But God then looks at you and sees you as totally blameless. And because he sees you as totally blameless, you become Totally blameless. That's justification. Does that make sense? All right. Justification comes from the Greek word, New Testament Greek word, diakoisis. D-I-K-I-O-S-I-S. D-I-K-I-O, diakoisis. And that comes from the Greek word diakio. D-I-K-A-I-O-O. Diakoisis. In the Greek. And it means to plead for the righteousness or innocence of a person. So when God justified you, when Jesus is interceding for you, he's establishing or pleading for your innocence and your righteousness. That's the context in which the word daikaio is used in Romans 3.24. Being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. The word justified there is the word dikaiosis, and it means to plead for the innocence or righteousness of. Does that make sense? The word also means to acquit, hence its legal ramification. To acquit, to clear you of all charges. You stood in the dock, you were guilty. All of us know you were guilty. God knows you were guilty. Hmm? The government knows you are guilty. But because of the political party you belong to or that you joined, 
the judge dropped all the charges against you mysteriously. The charges vanished and you were acquitted by connection. You were acquitted by implication. You were not acquitted because your defense counsel fought a good fight. You're not acquitted because you took 13 sons to court. It is not a son matter. He say, who do you know matter? Talk to me, Nigerians. He say, who is speaking for you in high places matter? He say, what level of connection do you have matter? Before you say that we are letting people go scot-free, we catch another person who is no, probably not in our good books or not in our party or not from where we are from. And we pin every kind of of imaginable offense on him because he's not in favor with the powers that be. And whether there's a son or no son, we declare him guilty because there must be a scapegoat. So for everybody that is justified, somebody was condemned in their place. It must be pinned on somebody. The person that orchestrated the acquittal of their party orchestrated the condemnation of the opposition. So justification is acquittal and being cleared of all the charges just because of who is interested in your matter. So when you stand before the dock and the prosecution reads your 29 count charge, the judge is not interested in your opening argument. He's not interested in the witnesses that are speaking for or against you. He's not interested in your... He already has his judgment predetermined. Justification is a legal term. As soon as you finish saying all you want to say, the prosecutor, sorry, the accuser, because the accuser is the prosecutor, comes and says, this person did this, this person did that, this person did that, this person did that, this person did that. And the judge just goes, yeah, well, I've heard all the arguments I need to hear in this case, and I don't see any reason why this person should be, should be, should be, should be indicted for whatever charges are, so I hereby dismiss this case, discharge and acquitted, broom, drops the thing, end of story. You go to the appeal court, they uphold. You go to the high court, you go to the supreme court, now what's left? Because of who is interested in the matter. Do you understand? So the court of heaven sits and the prosecuting counsel comes and they call your file. He did this on this day. He did that on that day. He did that on that day. He did the other on that day. He did that on that day. He did all of this, all of this, all of this. He deserves to die. And God already has his judgment. It's written. And in his judgment, there is no indictment against you. There's no enchantment against Jacob, no divination against Israel. He has not regarded iniquity in Jacob, nor seen transgression in Israel. He has not. He has not observed transgression. So it doesn't matter what the prosecuting counsel is arguing. God does not observe transgression. So his predetermined counsel is that you are going to be acquitted and is vexing the devil. How would you just acquit him, pardon him like that? But the soul that sinned, it shall die. Okay, no problem. For he made him who knew no sin to become sin. The moment Jesus became sin, he became in the opposition party. 
The moment he became sin, we now had somebody that we could kill to justify the person that we are going to acquit. Are you following my illustrations? The moment he became sin, it became justifiable for God to kill him because of God's predetermined plan to let me go scot-free. Why am I going scot-free? He's interested in my matter. He fell in love with me. Is it my fault? But for it to be a legally binding transaction, he puts all my sin on somebody and kills that person. But again, because he's God and he's omnipotent, the person he kills is the person that he can raise. Because it's himself. He can do anything. He can become sin while not sinning. Pay for sin and was not a sinner. Dealt with sin and he's still not a sinner. So he can kill himself and raise himself back from the dead. He can do whatever he likes. So he's the only candidate to handle this business. Do you understand what I'm saying? That's justification. So I'm, I'm acquitted because somebody else was punished on my behalf. You see, all that punishment he took, it was mine. All the stripes he took was mine. That's justification. So not only have I been pardoned, my sin, the penalty for my sin was absorbed by somebody else. Does that make sense? The penalty for all my sin. To be justified also means diakawasis. It also means to be approved, especially in a legal sense. In a legal sense, to be approved. So Romans 5.1, right, says, Therefore, having been justified by faith, having been approved by faith, we now have peace with God, right? Justified also means to be conformed. Not you conforming, but you have been conformed to the proper standard. When you are justified, you are conformed to the proper standard. So a justified believer, a justified son of God has met all the standards of God. A justified believer has met all the standards of God. Titus 3, 7. That having been justified, you see that that's past tense, by his grace, because of our justification, we should now become heirs according to the hope of all standards met to have eternal life. Justification conforms me to the standard of God. So now that I've been justified, I have hope, I have eternal life. It conforms you to the proper standard. Let me read you something that a systematic theologian wrote. I just painted you a picture, right? Of illegal, yeah? He says, there are only three options open to God when sinners stand in his courtroom. He must either condemn them or compromise his own righteousness in order to receive them just the way they are. Or he can change them into righteous people. There are only three options available to God when sinners stand in his courtroom. He must either condemn them or lower his standards and compromise his righteousness in order to accommodate them just as they are. Or he can change them into righteous people to conform to his standard. Is God enough to do any of the three? If he can exercise the third option, he can announce them righteous. And that is justification. He could do any of the three. He chose the third option. And that's good for me. Three, only three options that have, God has when he's dealing with sinners. Condemn them. For Christ, God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world. We have not been given a ministry of condemnation, but the ministry of condemnation is not a God thing. 
So option A, cancelled. Or he can reduce himself to accommodate your nonsense. Also, that's not possible because he's of fairer eyes than to behold iniquity. He's holy, he's just, he's pure, he's righteous. So again, option number two, cancelled. Option number three, he can now make you righteous to conform to him. And that was the more difficult option. It wasn't the easiest. You and I would choose the easiest. It would not have cost him anything to condemn you. He would just have become, needed to become less God in order to accommodate you. You know, because he loves you anyway. But to now change you, that one he needed to put his own life on the line. And that's the one he chose. Because that's how valuable you are. That's how valuable you are. So justification is an instantaneous legal act of God by which he reckons our sins forgiven. It is legal in the sense that it's not just God's love that caused him to make you righteous. Oh, I just like them. You know, let me just change them and make them righteous. No, all of your sin was put on somebody and that person was punished. Does that make sense? Yeah, it's punished. And that's what brings us into justification by faith. By faith. And that's where justification by faith comes in because you are justified, but you might not, if you don't apply faith, you might not appropriate it because you still feel guilty. Does that make sense? Justification by faith is you realizing and asserting the fact that you are guiltless even when you feel guilty. Do you understand? That's justification. Justification is walking into the court and you know the evidence stacked up against you. But because of the phone call you received before you went into the court, you know that you are going home at the end of the matter. (laughs) Do you understand what I just said? Because of the phone call you received or the text to say, it's all good, I got this. Your heart is beating. You stole the seven billion. You stole it. You too, you know that you stole it. Would you have stolen it and not known? You know. But you received an email. You were privy to some information that assured you, hopefully not falsely, hopefully it's not false assurance, depending on who's giving it to you, but then you will know that the person that called me, you will know from the person that called you the credibility of the information. So you know that there's overwhelming evidence against you, but in the midst of your fear, you know I'm going home. That's justification. By faith. Make sense? So you feel guilty, you know you messed up, but you have faith that the person, the powers that are backing you are not going to condemn you. Even if what you deserved was condemnation. And they are doing that for their name's sake. He's doing it for his name's sake. Has nothing to do with you. It's just that he can. And he chose to. That's the sovereignty of God. That's justification by faith. Do we get that? All right, so there's reconciliation as well, another element of salvation. We know that, right? Reconciliation. Second Corinthians 5 explains that very beautifully. Let's look at a couple of other scriptures. First Corinthians 7, 11. But even if she does depart, let her remain unmarried or be reconciled to her husband. You see the word there? Reconcile. Let's look at that word for a bit. Look at Romans chapter 5 and verse 10. You know the text in 2 Corinthians 5 already, don't you? Yeah? God was in Christ reconciling the world. Yeah? So Romans 5.10. For if when we were enemies, we were reconciled. Colossians chapter 1 and verse 15. 
Katalazo in the Greek, right? Reconcile. Katalazo. K-A-T-A-L-L-A-S-S-O. Katalazo. Colossians 1.15, we're going right through to 22. He's the firstborn, the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For by him all things were created that are in heaven and that are on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers. All things were created through him and for him, and he is before all things, and in him all things consist. And he is the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he may have preeminence. For it pleased the Father that in him, Christ, all the fullness should dwell, and by him to do what? To do what? Reconcile how many things? To himself. How many things are reconciled to himself? Because he could not have created all things for himself and some things are out of line. To reconcile all things to himself, look at how he did it. By him, whether things on earth or things in heaven, having made peace through the blood of his cross. And you, who were once alienated and enemies in your mind by wicked works, Yet now he has reconciled in the body of his flesh through death to present you holy and blameless and above reproach in his sight. Who is presenting you holy? Who is presenting you blameless? So why, who, who made you feel like you are the one that should be holy? Or that blamelessness is you not doing anything wrong. Blamelessness is not you not doing anything wrong. Blamelessness is a state of mind in God concerning you. Let me repeat. You are not blameless because you did wrong. You are blameless because God thinks of you as blameless. The blamelessness God is working with, sir, is not the blamelessness of the fact that you did nothing wrong. Is the blamelessness of him in Christ reckoning you as without guilt. So when I am blameless, I am not saying I'm blameless because I have not done anything wrong. Mm -mm. Because that one, you are blameful. Do you understand what I'm saying? If you did wrong, you did wrong, sir. And your wrong has consequences. If you had any, any kind of sex and you got HIV positive, it wasn't God that judged you. Talk to me now. It wasn't God. You got a Ferrari or a Pojo. And you said, let me max the speedometer of this car. Let me see how fast the car can go. You ended up on a tree and then in front of St. Peter at the gate of, <laughs> at the pearly gates. Who killed you? Yourself. It's not enemies from your village. And it's not God either. Were you wrong? Yes. Have you paid for your wrong? Yes. That's your business. Does God hold you to account and call it against you? No. Or you survive the car crash and you have one and a half leg. And you say, oh God, why did you do this to me? He doesn't, no, 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 he doesn't condemn anybody. Don't blame your crap on God. So God reckoning you blameless is not that you did nothing wrong. It's that his mind is set concerning you. God chooses to see you without blame. Do you understand? That you're holy is not that you don't watch TV. You don't wear short clothes. You pray in the morning. Two hours, afternoon, 
two hours. In fact, five times a day. Hmm? At least like Daniel, three times a day. Hmm? You read your Bible. Old Testament, two chapters. New Testament, two chapters. One chapter of Psalms, half a chapter of Proverbs. <laughs> you get it. Oh, so you now feel holy. Every time you go out, the taxi driver upsets you. You look at him and you say, bless you. Bless you. Piosity is not holiness. Because holiness in itself is an act of God. There are unbelievers who are more holy in action than you. They are unbelievers. Hey, have you met some? We don't have them in Nigeria. Six. S-I-K, the six. Go and study the life of the six. My Lord. Even the Buddhists are not as holy as the Sikhs, the Indian Sikhs. They are the most respectful, most polite, most measured, most controlled, most deliberate set of people on the earth. They, they never do anything randomly. The Sikhs, ever. They respect insects. There's a way they bury a fly when it dies. They are never ever violent. Don't raise their voices. Don't get angry. And they don't have Jesus. And they are not regarded as holy. So piosity is not holiness. And holiness is not piosity. Holiness is an act and infusion of God. Into whoever he elected. So that that person conforms to his standard. Does that make sense? Kadosh in the Hebrew. It means to be removed from something and separated onto something. That's holiness. It's an act of God. It's, it's how God chooses to see you. It's not what you do to pray, impress God. Holiness is how God chooses to see you. And because he chose to see you as such, you are as such. So I am holy, follow come. I was not saved to become holy. As I got saved, I arrived holy, blameless. Do you, do you understand what I'm saying? As I was born again, boom, holy. I will not be any holier, no matter how much I spend on the earth, than I became at the point of my regeneration. You will not be any more female than you were when you were born. We take one look at you, boom, it's a girl. Boom, it's a boy. You are not mutating. Is it a boy, girl, girl, boy? Is that a split or a dangle? What is, what is it? We're not sure you'll be mutating. You will evolve. Lava to pupa. Pupa to... No. You will grow in your gender expression. Hmm? You will grow in your gender expressions. Your body organs will develop according to your gender. But you're not becoming more male. You're not becoming more female. When you were born a girl, you are a girl. Having bigger boobs does not make you a, a girlier girl than the girl that has smaller boobs. Boobs are not the image of God. And the sisters say, yeah. Your butt is not the image of God. If you have the kind of behind, you can be telling them, Goodness, mercy, follow me. Yeah. And you are as straight as a ruler. You are a girl. 
you are female. Complete. When it's time for you to lactate, you will lactate. When it's time for you to breastfeed, you will breastfeed. When it's time for you to play womanly functions, you play womanly functions. You are not a anymore girl because you have a lot more proportion than others. You're not any less girl because you have less proportion than others. Your gender is your gender. But you arrived female. You're not getting better at being female. You were born. God looks at you as you got born. Boom! Regeneration. Holy. Set apart. You're not going to be holier. You're just holy. But as you grow and come into the understanding of your holiness, you learn to wear it better. Do you understand? She didn't become a better lady when she started dressing. She didn't become a lady when she started dressing. Even when she used to look like a boy successfully. Intrinsically, inherently, she was a lady. She was. Beneath all, was she was a lady. And one day, she has an encounter. Whoever the encounter is with, whether herself, her pastor, an angel, a spirit, we don't know. Hmm? Paul said, whether in the flesh or out of the flesh or the body, I don't know. And then he adds, adds another one. Only God knows. Hmm? She had an encounter with whom only God knows. And all what we have been preaching, all we have been teaching, all we have been encouraging came to a epignosis. Then she dressed once. And then some of us said, Hey! Malato Gobo. I like what I see. You are a lady. Not lady. Yeah? Lady and lady is like sin and transgression. Watch this. She got affirmation. For her appearance. She got affirmation. She got approval. She got honor. She said, wow, this looks good on you. You look smoking. And because of that, the following day, she dressed. She dressed, showed up. We're like, whoa, have you seen her today? We talk about it. Yeah, talk, we talk about it publicly. Have you seen her today? Whoa, man. Jesus, my eyes have seen, my ears have heard. Have you seen? And then she shows up and like, when well, you look sizzling. Hoo, hoo, hoo. The next day, she dressed. It looked like dresses were going to finish. She went and looked for where dresses are in the most impossible of places and brings out dresses out of nothing. Now, we don't know where the dresses are coming from. But because we see how hot she's looking, we are now starting to give her dresses because there's a way she's rocking them that is so hot. So now we are blessing her with more dresses so she can look more hot every day. Now she has gotten to the point where even if you don't tell her that she's looking hot, she knows she's looking hot and she has made a habit of looking hot. Are you following me? You were born, regenerated, holy. You are not getting any holier. Yeah. But one day you wake up, you're like, ah, I cannot do some nonsense. I used to do it, but I'm holy. And holy cannot. You now changed. 
Heaven saw you. Heaven applauded you. The church saw you. The church encouraged you. You now realize it. Ah! So this thing is sweet like this. Addiction dies. Works of the flesh die. Every day because we are constantly telling you, you are the righteousness of God in Christ. You are not a sinner. You are the righteousness of God in Christ. You are justified. You are redeemed. You are not condemned. You are secure. Your assurance is secure. Because we are telling you that every time you wear it, you just start to grow into it. And you start to rock it with no apology. You start to act righteousness. You start to talk righteousness. You start to pray righteousness. You start to to give righteousness you start to think righteousness you start to behave righteousness that is not when you became righteous and your acts of righteousness now are not improving your righteousness you just realize i look i look really nice in girl clothes duh you are a girl before you knew it you are a girl now you know it now you are dressing like one so all we need to do is remind you you are a girl and when we see your girl tendencies compliment and celebrate them that's why the church builds each other up or a kodome edify each other we celebrate the christ in you that we see even when we see nonsense the danger is you two don't sit down and think that you don't have nonsense do you understand so i tell you hannah you look very hot and and she now start to argue but i always used to look hot oh i don't know what you're talking about you have missed it you have entered self-righteousness righteousness but we celebrate the the christ in you in spite of you that's holiness that's righteousness is anybody getting this and that's what justification has brought you into so now we talk about reconciled all things to himself reconciliation catalazo suggests that before there was reconciliation there was beef that's why i showed you all those scriptures Reconciliation suggests that we're not friends, we're enemies. But what reconciliation did was to bring us back to the Father. So the word katalazo suggests exchange or change. Exchange enmity for friendship or to change your status from enemy to friend. Does that make sense? That's reconciliation. And God was in Christ exchanging the enmity of the world. For friendship. God was in Christ removing the enmity of the wall against God and making them friends. That's reconciliation. Did you get that? Righteousness, another element of the salvation package. Dikosune in the Greek. It's very from the same root word almost as justification. You, you already know the correlation now, right? Innocent by implication, conformity to God's being. Galatians 3, 6. Just as Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him for righteousness. It was accounted to him for righteousness. It means that it, it was accounted to, he was reckoned as one who has conformed to God's will. Does that make sense? When you are righteous, you have conformed to God's will. Romans 8 and 3 and 4. Romans 8 and 3 to 4. For what the law could not do in that it was weak through the flesh, God did by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh on account of sin. 
he condemned sin in the flesh that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh but after the spirit. He condemned sin that the righteous requirement, everything God required of man to keep is now fulfilled in us. So a regenerated person, a born again person arrives not to keep the law arrives having kept the law. Did you hear what I said? Whether you are righteous, whether you are Greek, whether you are Jew, whether you are brother, as you arrived, whatever God demanded of human race, you arrived having met it as a born again child of God. That the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk after the flesh but after the spirit. That's righteousness. Because you cannot please God by yourself. So God deposits his nature in you and then declares that he's pleased with you. So when he sees you, what does he see? His nature. Righteousness is his nature. You have no righteousness of your own. You cannot generate it. You cannot become righteous. Israel tried it and failed. Did you hear what I said? You cannot become righteous. Haven't you tried enough? That's why I feel very, very sorry for believers who make vows. Father, I covenant, I put my covenant with you today. If I do this thing, kill me. And you still go and break it. When you break it, you now remember mercy. You now come and sing, for you're the God of a second. Meanwhile, you're on like 200 chants by now. I'm now. still singing second chance. You now strive and strive and strive and strive and strive and strive and strive. You now fall. Ah, God. You have not killed me. You'll be surprised that you are alive. And then you now tell God, okay, God, this is how we're going to do it now. When you see me about to fall into this thing, kill me. Because at least I will go to heaven. If you see me about to sleep, about to be tempted, and you know that I cannot take it, call me back to glory. No, yeah, no, it's not glory. Call me back to glory. Take me home, Father. God will be looking at you and be laughing like Tom and Jerry. And you will now be going, ting, 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 ting. And you now go and enter inside and God did not call it to glory. You now get angry at God. Why, why could you not stop me? Could you watch me fall? Now vex. He doesn't need it, sir. He's not predicating your righteousness on your performance. So honestly, he's not moved by your performance. You, as you're growing, you sense will be entering you. Do you understand what I'm saying? Who went and preached to the prodigal son? He just looked at the pigs and advised himself. Do you see that any evangelist preached to him? The Bible says he just saw his, his, where he was and came to. Luke 15. He came to. We add his senses, but in the language he says he, and he came to. He just woke. Because he realized enough is enough. I, 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 no, come on now. I can't be like this. When my father is my father. You wake up. That's why we're teaching you. 
But if we cover your eyes so that you will not misbehave, we have become the prefect of your salvation. And God did not call us to police any man's salvation. God didn't call us to police any man's salvation, to check if you are saved. Who shall lay a charge against the Lord's elect? Romans 8, I think 33. It is, in fact, let's look at that. 31. There's three questions Paul asks there that are crucial to understanding the quality of your salvation. Romans 8, 31. Three pertinent questions. First question. What shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? That's the first question. If God is for us, who can be against us? That's question number one. Don't just think his enemies or witches and wizards or evil spirit or... No, no, no. That's, that's not the context. He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? It clears answers. It is God. Why didn't he say it is God who brings a charge? What we're talking about here is about God telling people you are wrong. About, or about somebody informing you of your wrong. Think about it with me. Who shall, N NLT. Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? You would have thought only the person who has elected you can charge you. Who dares accuse us whom God has chosen for his own? No one. For God himself has given us right standing with himself. In other words, accusation is not even a conversation with God. Let's see it in the message. And who would dare tangle with God? By messing with one of God's chosen. Who would even dare to point a finger? Who is he that lays a charge against God's elect? It is God. Who chooses to not see a charge to lay that justifies? So while you are looking at laying a charge, all God is looking at doing is justifying. Switch back to New King James. It is God that does what? Justifies. Who is he that condemned? Same question. It is Christ who died and furthermore is also risen. In other words, Holy Spirit, help me. Who is he that condemns? It is Christ who died. In other words, if anybody has the right to condemn you, it's Christ. And instead of condemning you, he died for you. So who, who is having mouth? Who is talking? Who is saying what? What? That's what Paul is saying. What? Who is? Who is? Who is? That's what Paul is saying. Nigerian revised standard version. Who among you is? Rising. Who is it? Who is it? Yadi 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 It is God who justifies. It is Christ who died. Who should have condemned you? He said I died for you. Next verse. See the next question. The last question. Can you see the journey? If God is for us, who can be against us? Who is He that lays a charge against God's elect? It's God that justifies. Who is He that condemns? It's Christ that died for you. Last question. On account of this, who shall separate us? From the love of this Christ who did not condemn us but died for us. It then goes on. Shall tribulation or distress or persecution, famine or nakedness or peril or sword. And these are a 
typology or a symbol of the things that life throws at you that mess with your faith. And God says, even those things that life throws at you that will mess with your faith cannot separate you from his love. What an assurance. 36. It's written, for your sake we are killed all day long. We are counted as sheep for the slaughter. Yet in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. Not through our love for him. Through him who loved us. Then he now goes, Paul is stating matter of factly. Hmm? Matter of factly that for I am persuaded that neither your death or life, neither angels or principalities or powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus. Excuse me. Under this category, all these things, where does Satan fall? Principality plus power. And God said, even principalities and powers cannot separate you from my love. No demon. No Satan. No accuser. No false prophet. No antichrist can separate you from his love. God is not war against Satan for your soul. Did you hear what I said? He's not, he's not fighting Satan. Satan himself knows that what is out of bounds. He himself knows who is out of bounds. He's not, nothing can separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus. That's the imputation of God's love that makes us righteous. Do we get it? I need to look at this one because of how crucial it is to Africans. Deliverance. What did I say was the Greek word for forgiveness? Ephesus from the Greek word, aphemai. Deliverance in the New Testament Greek is the Greek word aphesis. So deliverance is the Greek word aphesis from the root word aphemai. That's right. What does that therefore tell us straight away? It tells us that deliverance is the forgiveness of sins. And the forgiveness of sins is deliverance. They are not two separate events in the timeline of salvation. For a man to be delivered is for the man's sins to be blotted away. Because a man is open to oppression only in the presence of the sinful nature. You are not a sinner who is then oppressed. You are being oppressed because you are a sinner. So your life is playground for the enemy. Does that make sense? Once your sin is removed and the Holy Spirit moves into you, which deliverance do you need again? So a believer does not guard himself to prevent himself from being possessed by demons. There's no space in the believer 
for demons to come and possess. Do you understand? I've told you over and over in this house, your life as a believer is not a three-bedroom flat whereby the Holy Spirit moved in and he just took the master bedroom. You now left one room free. So now you cannot be possessed by demons. The demons are in one room. Holy Spirit is now in the master bedroom. How can light and darkness correlate? So the Holy Spirit is in your life. And a demon came in, saw the light on in the master bedroom, peeped the master bedroom, saw that the Holy Spirit is in the building and still moved in. It's not possible. Deliverance is the forgiveness of sins. The forgiveness, the dismissal, the removing, the counting away, the blotting away of sin changes the entire ball game and puts an end to demonic oppression. The removal of the sin nature is the deliverance of the believer. Period. Scripture cannot lie. I've said over and over, and critics have not been able to answer me, that there is no one place in the New Testament that records a believer undergoing what we call deliverance today. Not one. There's no one record where demons were cast out of a believer. And check the record. Every time a demon was cast out, he was an unbeliever. That's why the New Testament is totally silent on the work of demons inside children of God. It doesn't exist. So the question is, can a believer be demon-possessed? That question is dead on arrival. It's not a question. Can a believer be demon-possessed? It's not a question. The question is, can a demon-possessed person be said to be a believer? And it's a challenge we're throwing out there. To the nations. Can a believer be demon possessed? That's a very stupid question. Very, very stupid question. If there's a question, the question is, can a person who is successfully demon possessed be a believer? And of course, you know the answer to that. Because everybody at any point in time is possessed by one force only. You are either possessed or you are possessed. You cannot be possessed by both. The moment you got born again, you got possessed. You know why you got possessed? Because of the jailbreak that happened made you first dispossessed. Because he delivered you, translated it from the kingdom of darkness, right? Into the kingdom of the son of his love. So you were possessed by the devil. At the born again experience, you got dispossessed and then you now got possessed. A demon cannot now come back and dispossess you of the Holy Spirit to repossess you. Because at your birth, dispossession happened, possession happened. You can only be possessed by one force at a time. So you look at me and say, that pav, the way he's acting, he's possessed. You didn't know before. Oh, you didn't realize. I am so possessed, I am besides myself. And Paul says, the life I now live in the flesh. I live by the faith of the son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I don't, I don't, I don't have any control over this life. I am possessed. It's not I that lives. It's Christ that lives in me. Deliverance of this is the removal of the sin nature. The removal of the sin nature is the deliverance of the believer. That is why deliverance is not prayed. Deliverance is not administered. Deliverance is not prescribed. Deliverance is preached. Did you hear what I said? That is why deliverance is preached. Deliverance is in the gospel. Did you hear what I said? Deliverance is 
in the gospel. The gospel is deliverance. Luke chapter 4 and verse 18. Luke 4 18. The spirit of the Lord, this is Jesus speaking, is upon me. For he has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. And poor there is not physically poor. Alright? Poor in spirit. Those who are spiritless. Unregenerate. Or degenerate. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted. To proclaim liberty to the captives. And recovery of sight to the blind. To set at liberty those who are oppressed. To proclaim the acceptability of the Lord. Go to King James. Look for 18. King James. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he hath anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He hath sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to preach deliverance. And the word deliverance there is the word aphemirai, aphesis. It's the word rescue. The word removing of sin. The word killing of the old nature. The word jailbreak. The removal of the sin nature is the deliverance of the believer. They are not two separate events in the timeline of salvation. You, then, you don't get forgiven and then delivered. Forgiveness is deliverance. Deliverance is forgiveness. Do you get that? The old Testament, Hebrew word for deliverance, oh, it gets even more exciting, is the Hebrew word pelata, P-E-L-E-T-A-H, P-E-L-E-T-A-H, pelata in the Hebrew. That's the word used for deliverance in the Old Testament, pelata, P-E-L, peleta, P-E-L-E, like pele and T-A-H, right? Peleta, and peleta in the Hebrew means to escape, which is the same thing of dismissal, removing, forgiveness in the New Testament, Right? So you now come and hear prophets say, but the Bible says in the book of Obadiah, verse 17, upon Mount Zion, there shall be deliverance and the sons of God, children of God shall possess. Let's look at deliverance, Peleta, let's look at Mount Zion. But upon Mount Zion shall be deliverance. You need deliverance. Deliverance is upon Zion. Deliverance is the word peleta, which is the word rescue or dismissal. So upon Zion there shall be rescue or escape, right? Or a remnant that has escaped. Or upon Zion shall be the forgiveness of sin. Now let us look at Zion. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 18. For you have not come to the mountain that may be touched and that burned with fire, and to blackness and darkness and tempest, and the sound of a trumpet describing Old Testament, Mount Sinai, basically. Yeah? And the sound of a trumpet and the voice of words, so that those who heard it begged that the words should not be spoken to them anymore. See the next verse. For they could not endure what was commanded. And if so much as a beast touches that mountain, it shall be stoned or shot with an arrow. And so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I am exceedingly afraid and trembling. But you have come to Mount Zion. And upon Mount Zion there shall be forgiveness of sins. Mount Zion is not a city. Mount Zion is not a location. 
There's a location, Mount Zion, I will get to in a minute, and you'll understand the significance upon Mount Zion, there shall be deliverance. Mount Zion is a system of the expression of God in Christ. You have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly. Not the one in Israel where you go and collect sand from the ground or wrap a prayer in a paper and chuck inside a hole in the wall. That's not Mount Zion. That's not Jerusalem. You have come to Mount Zion. Mount Zion, the word Zion or Zion in the Hebrew represents the highest peak. That's what it means. Highest peak. Mount Zion are the mountains outside in physical location now. Are the mountains outside Jerusalem. David chose Jebus, the land of the Jebusites. He chose Jebus when he conquered the Jebusites to build the city of God called Jerusalem because they were surrounded by these mountain peaks that together are called Mount Zion. Does that make sense? In Genesis 22, when God called Moses to go and kill his son, a type of Christ, Mount Moriah, where they went, is one of the peaks in the mountains surrounding Jerusalem called Zion. That's why David will say, as the mountains are round about Jerusalem. Does that make sense? Moriah was a peak around Jerusalem where Isaac was killed. Where Isaac was killed. And where Isaac resurrected from the dead. According to your Bible. Isaac was killed. And Abraham, God the father, received his son back from the dead. Isaac, by faith. So, so you do not see it in the Genesis 22 account. In the physical eye account, you didn't see it. <laughs> but in the faith narrative... Isaac died and Abraham resurrected him back and received him back to life. That's what Hebrews 11 says. By faith, Abraham did not withhold Isaac and offered him up, judging him faithful to be able to resurrect him from the dead, from which he also received him figuratively. That's what Hebrews says. What mountain? Moriah. Where's Moriah? Mount Zion. When Jesus starts the steps of the cross, carrying his cross, where did they take him? The mountains outside Jerusalem. Same mountain where Isaac was offered. Same Mount Zion. So when, what happened on the Mount Calvary? is one of the mountain peaks on Mount Zion. What happened there? The cross. What happened at the cross? Redemption, the forgiveness of sins justification so when you say upon mount, when obadiah prophesied upon mount zion there shall be deliverance who was obadiah speaking of who did obadiah see when he spoke in 17 christ and the work that he would do on the cross on the hill mount zion that is why because we have now received the forgiveness of sins the writer of hebrews then says but now you have come to mount zion do you understand now? You have come to forgiveness. You have come to redemption. You have come to justification. You have come to righteousness. You have come to deliverance, to the forgiveness of sin. You have come. 
to the blood of sprinkling that speaks better things than the blood of Abel. Where? Mount Zion. The death of the cross is Mount Zion. And there at the cross, when my sin was forgiven, my deliverance was purchased. I need no other argument. I need no other plea. It is enough that Jesus died and that he died for me. At the point that he died for me, I was delivered. I cannot be any more delivered than I am now. You cannot be any more delivered. You are completely delivered in past tense. You are untouchable. You are untouchable. Demons can't mess with you. When you are sat above them, how now? You are afraid of demonic affliction. How? You are afraid of witches. 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 When he disarmed principalities and powers, the powers that control the witches, he disarmed. You are afraid of the witch. When the force behind the witch has been disarmed, we are delivered. I need no other argument. You cannot convince me. You cannot, oh foul spirit of religion that is crumbling in these last days at the speed of lightning. Jesus said, I saw Satan fall from heaven like lightning. He was speaking figuratively of the system of this world. It's crumbling. What nonsense. You come and convince a son of God that was purchased by the life of God, shed by the blood of God, that a demon is harassing them inside them. A demon has moved in to live. Do you not know? That your bodies are the temple of the Holy Spirit. Corinthians were fornicating with harlots in the temple. And Paul told them in the midst of their fornication that their bodies are the temple of the Holy Spirit. Why did the Holy Spirit not leave them for a demon spirit of fornication to enter them? Why did he not leave? Why did he not tell them? Do you not know that the moment you sleep with a harlot, the spirit of fornication enters you and the Holy Spirit leaves? He reminds somebody who is sleeping around. Somebody who is sleeping with his father's concubine. Do you not know that your bodies are the temple of the Holy Spirit in whom he also dwells? Therefore, glorify God with your bodies. Stop that. In other words, he's telling him, stop that nonsense. You are carrying God. Do you understand? So he's telling him, stop, stop, stop. Stop that nonsense. Do you not know that you are carrying God? It didn't ever imply, do you not know that in that nonsense you did, God can leave you. So instead, he evoked reverence in them for the God that they are carrying. Such that by the reverence of God, not by the threat of God leaving, but by their reverence of God, they would act circumspectly, walking as wise and not as fools. And scripture begins to make sense. Lives in you can't be possessed. You can't. You can't. Even if you did not know, you might have been oppressed. You might have been victimized by devils. But you cannot be possessed by them. You were victimized and oppressed to the measure of your ignorance or abdication of who you are in Christ. Toss you around. Mess up with you. Ask you to stand. Stand as you sit. Sit. You don't know who, who you are. So they will mess with you. 
But they are visitors, they are guests. They can't move into you. They can't. Because you know why? If a demon is in you, the Holy Spirit left you. The Holy Spirit left you. You are eternally lost. If he leaves you, he's not coming back. If he leaves you, the seal is broken. If he leaves you, the authentication of your salvation is broken. It's gone. You are lost. You are finished. In God's plan now, you don't exist anymore. So you cannot even sing second chance. You can't come and repent. Which, where do you want to repent from when you are dead? The removal of the sin nature is the deliverance of the believer. One of the people who was following our live stream said something that struck me. He said, if only people hearing this can believe this, we will break the hold of some religious leaders over our lives. And that's the truth. We are preaching the nonsense we are preaching because it gives us power over you. So we want to keep your eyes covered. Don't know because once you know now, you'll not be running to papa and mama for every single problem that you have. You just exercise your authority in Christ. You fasted, you prayed, you sowed seed, you went to your village, you removed a tree. They say this, another tree. You went and removed the pots. They say it's another tree. You went, they say it's your mother's village. You went to your mother's village. They say you should come and bring oil and bring something from your village and lay on the altar. You came and you did it and somehow, it just never ends. You pray for demons to die. They are not dying. Mutant demons. Zombie demons. Vampire demons. They evolve every night. They wait for daytime, you don't see them. At night, they suck blood. Blood sucking demons. Where do you see that in your Bible? Come and suck. Do you know what blood I'm carrying? That's the last blood you will suck. I'm going to judge angels. Then it's demon I'm afraid of. They know their mate. They know who they can mess with. They know they can't touch me. Deliverance is preached. It's not much. Did you not see Isaiah? In Isaiah, come and buy without money. Buy without price. Drink milk and honey. Without price. Come and drink of the waters of life. It's not purchased. It's not worked for. It's not worked into. It is not earned. It was given as part of the salvation gift. We are delivered. Do you not see Colossians chapter 1? Who has delivered us? Colossians chapter 1 verse 13. He has what? Not he will. He has. By virtue of forgiving my sins. He removed me from the power of darkness. And he conveyed. He transported you. Do you understand it? He flew you. He transported you into the basilia of the son of his love. Delivered you from darkness. And conveyed you safely. It's guiding me safely in the way. It's guiding me safely in the way. That's, that's what he's done. He conveyed you safely and dropped you inside the kingdom of the son of his love. He delivered. It is past tense. Delivered. It's past tense. You were as delivered as you were healed. You were as delivered as your sins were forgiven. You were as delivered as you were reconciled. It is mischievous and malicious to agree that your sins were forgiven but your deliverance is pending. Do you understand what I said? It's, it's, it's evil to preach that your sins, yeah, we agree. Yes, now we cannot do anything about it. Yes, your sins have been forgiven. Even the sin that have been forgiven, so that's how you will do it. And you will now bring back the sin that was forgiven. 
We preach it. But yeah, 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 last, last, we agree. Your sins were forgiven. But deliverance, you need us for this one. By a prophet, he brought them out of Egypt. By a prophet, he led them into a promised land. Have you read Hebrews chapter 1 verse 1? God who at various times and in various ways spoke in time past to the fathers by the prophets has in these last days spoken to us by his son. Yes, our fathers heard prophets. But the prophets were pointing to Christ. Starting at Moses and all the prophets, Luke 24, Jesus said, he expounded to them the things in the scriptures concerning himself. I am he who the prophets wrote about, he announced. On the Mount of Transfiguration, Moses appeared representing the law. Elijah appeared representing the prophets because until John the Baptist, Elijah was the greatest, according to scripture. So Moses encapsulating the law, Elijah encapsulating the prophets, and the son appearing. And then a voice came from heaven. God said, I can see the law. I can see the prophets. But this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Now hear him. Hear ye him. Leave the law. Leave the prophets. They came on either side of Jesus holding him like Aaron and her holding Moses type and shadow Moses and Elijah saying we have played our part we have delivered the son we are just guardians and tutors according to Galatians 3 the son is here we are stepping aside and the father says hear he him that was the significance of the mount of transfiguration the significance of the Mount of Transfiguration was the heralding of the change of dispensation. Do you understand? If you miss that in looking at the Mount of Transfiguration, you miss the entire narrative. It wasn't about glory. The glory that showed up was still little. It was just a glimpse. It's just a glimpse. Just a glimpse of glory and the three disciples passed out. The significance of the Mount of Transfiguration was the heralding of a change, a shift. Of dispensation the dispensation changed on the cross so the law is the law is retired them old testament style prophets are retired they are retired prophets lifted above the people that are only the ones that hear god for the people are dead those prophets are dead anyone alive now is a lie Prophets that heard God in place or instead of the people are dead. Gone with the dispensation. In this dispensation of sons, everybody knows the mind of the father. You don't need a prophet. If anybody tells you anything that is not a confirmation, in fact, affirmation, not even confirmation of what you already know, then something's wrong with you. What you're calling prophet these days at best should be people that exercise the gift of word of knowledge. People that are walking around calling themselves prophets today are at best walking in the gift of word of knowledge. At best. The majority of them are operating by familiar spirits. Not the spirit of God. Acts chapter 16. Verse 16. Now it happened as we went to prayer that a certain slave girl Possessed with a spirit of divination, met us, 
Who brought her masters much profit? So first of all, the spirit of divination is the spirit of profit. That's why nothing goes for nothing in the prophetic realm. Talk to me now. Not in the prophetic realm, nothing goes for nothing. And that's not the gift of Christ because he says, come and buy without price. Yeah. Oh no, we don't charge you, but you buy oil, oh yeah, you buy water. You buy, we, we have not charged you, we have just charged you. Yeah. We didn't charge you, we build you. <laughs> Do you understand? We didn't bill you, sorry, we, invo- we invoiced you. Who brought her masters much profit by her fortune telling? The gospel is not for sale. The gospel is not for profit. Divination and familiar spirits are for profit and merchandising. She brought her master much profit by her fortune telling. And the fact that she was bringing them profit means that her fortune telling was accurate. Otherwise, after a few days, we would have all known that what she's saying is not true. And then profit would have dried up. She was profitable in her fortune telling. So she was lucrative to her masters. See verse 17. This girl followed Paul and us. This is Luke writing, right? Followed Paul and us and cried out, saying, These men are servants of the Most High God who proclaim to us the way of salvation. Is there anything wrong in what she was saying? These men are servants of the Most High God who proclaim to us the way of of salvation accurate job description of the ministerial resume of the apostles who was saying this diabolon satan the accuser in a spirit of divination walking in a girl ah wow how is she saying what she's saying the apostles saw through see verse 18 this she did for many days you would have thought that's not a problem now that's free advertisement free megaphone talk to me now you are just doing your your own and then somebody is just following you everywhere you go. These are servants of the Most High God, oh, proclaiming the way of salvation. You should be giving her breakfast, lunch, and dinner. But Paul, greatly annoyed, turned and said to the Spirit, not the girl, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. He came out that very hour. Paul shut up a demon. From glorifying Jesus. So the glorifying of Jesus is not the sign of authentication of a man of God. The fact that they say in Jesus name does not mean that they are of God. This lady was not saying anything wrong. The demon was accurate. The demon was speaking by revelation. The demon was speaking by revelation. The demon was accurate. And yet Paul was annoyed by her accuracy. Because of the spirit that was at work. Rebuked the spirit and cast it out. So most of this is familiar spirits. Most. Some are just plain charlatans. Deliverance is not a ministry. It's part of the salvation soteria package. Once you collect soteria, inside it is deliverance. Have you gotten this? Let's go into the final one I want to consider in the salvation package that will lead us to where we're going. Preservation. Preservation. And in the Old Testament, it is the word... Shamar. S-H-A-M-A-R. Preservation is the word Shamar. Shamar. Not Shama. Shama is, is a Hebrew word, but it's a different word. What Shamar is the Old Testament word for preserve. And the New Testament word for preserve is Terio. T-E-R-E-O. 
comes from the Greek word terio, T-E-R-E-O. And in both instances, the word means to maintain freshness, to guard, to keep intact, to watch over, and to keep. To maintain freshness, to guard, to keep intact. Psalm 97 verse 10. You who love the Lord, hate evil, he preserves, he maintains the freshness of the souls of his saints. He guards the soul of his saints, the souls. He keeps intact the souls of his saints. He watches over the souls of his saints. He keeps the souls of his saints. He delivers them out of the hand of the wicked. First Thessalonians 5 and 23. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely and may your whole spirit, soul, and body be preserved blameless at the coming of our Lord. We're not trying to make rapture. May your whole spirit, soul, and even this your corrupt body be preserved how? Blameless. Let's see how the NLT puts this text. Now may the God of peace make you holy in every way. And may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept. Can you see it there? Terio. Kept how? Blameless. Until our Lord Jesus Christ comes again. He wasn't telling you to do something. He was just praying what God will do. It was a prayer. It was one of Paul's, Paul's prayers. One of the Pauline prayers. The message. May God himself. The God who makes everything holy and whole. Make you holy and whole. And put you together. Spirit, soul and body. And keep you fit for the coming of our master Jesus Christ. He keeps me blameless. He's not keeping me to punish me on the last day. He keeps me blameless. Blameless. Who shall lay a charge? It's the Lord that justifies. Whom he justified, he also glorified. So after this is my justification, the next thing I'm expecting is glorification. Not condemnation. What kind of reverse psychology is that? How does that work? He John justified me, then what to come and condemn me? It's not possible. That's a legal travesty. Tra tra travesty. He can't do that. That's a travesty. He can't do that. After justification, what awaited I is glorification. Because whom he justified, he also glorified. I am in glory now, but the glory that is coming, man, you don't, oh my God, you don't understand. So, he's keeping me to enter that day. And how is he keeping me? Blameless. In other words, recording no blame to my account. I am I, even I, am he who blots away our transgression. I will cleanse them of all the dirt they have done Against me. Remember that text? I will forgive all their rebellion. I preserve them how blameless. Beautiful, isn't it? Look at Jude 1. How he starts his short letter. Jude, a bond servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James to those who are called those who are sanctified by God the Father and those who are preserved in Jesus Christ. Those who are called, those who are sanctified by God the Father and those who are preserved in 
man. He's preserving you. He's your preservative. He's your preservator. He's the administer of the preservative that he's preserving you. And he's the container in which the preservation is taking place. There has to be a preservative. There has to be somebody applying the preservative. There has to be a place where the preservation is taking place in. All of it is Christ by himself. He didn't outsource any iota of it. He's your preservative. He's your preservation. And he's the one in whom the preservative is preserving you. And he's the one in whom he, in whom the preservative that is him, is preserving you by him, is preserving you for him. Do you understand? He's the substance of your preservation. He's the application of your preservation. He's the containment of your preservation. And he's the result of your preservation. Did you get it? He's preserving you where? In Christ Jesus. He is my preservation. He's my preservator. And my preservation is happening inside him to be preserved for the day of him. Do you understand it? Now we come to the crux of the matter. If Christ is our preservative, what is the quality of this preservation? What can make it spoil? What can make it go bad? If it is Christ, now you understand why Christ has to preserve you because there's so much at stake in him saving you. Do you understand? There's so much at stake in him saving you. So he has to preserve you blameless and only him can do it. It's a work he started that only he can finish. What is the quality of that preservation? As we begin to come into that understanding, we begin to answer the question, is my salvation really forever? Why is this important? Because the quality of your preservation speaks to the quality of your salvation. How much we are using, how much we are spending to preserve you is a testament to how much it costs us to manufacture you. You only preserve something you intend to keep because of the value of what it costs you to get it. Otherwise, you just wash it away and leave it. Or if it goes bad, it goes bad. Does that make sense? You buy a cupcake. You don't spend time preserving the cupcake. But if you get a 12-inch Zinis cake, you know, with the berries, the, the Oreos, you know, the, the, the Mars chocolates, you know, the cream, man. And then you get home, you sit down first, you eat small food. If you're like me, you eat small food. Just small. So you can have space for desert. You now eat the desert and now start thinking of which food to suck from your fridge to put the cake inside whole. To preserve the cake whole. Very important. You don't want to break the cake up into 10 containers. You feel like you're spoiling the beauty of the cake. You want to be seen as you are slicing the cake away and, you know, just taking that trapezium, taking that, okay, taking that, that, that triangle out. and then, yeah. As much as lies in your power, you want to preserve the cake whole. So this soup, this soup bowl has been here for six days. If I've not eaten it, it's not now that it goes bad that it will affect me. You now remove that soup bowl. Am I painting a practical picture? This moment, this moment, they gave me this moment three weeks ago. All of a sudden, you, you, your priorities change. Because preservation is in view. And preservation speaks to the quality of the product. Because of the value of the product, you are, you are taking extra care to preserve it. 
you, all your entire energies are convoluted on preserving this cake whole and blameless. All your energies are focused, all your resources are channeled towards preserving because it speaks to the quality of the product. And that quality is determined by the ingredients of the product. What you're trying to preserve is determined by the quality. The quality rather is determined by the ingredients, what makes up the product, right? It's the difference between icing and cream. The quality of a product is determined by the ingredients that go into the product. Does that make sense? There's afang and then there is afang. The quality of a product is determined by the ingredients. What informs preservation is the quality of the product. What informs quality is the ingredients, the makeup. I took time to establish to you the ingredients of your salvation. Justification mixed with righteousness added to reconciliation plus adoption plus deliverance. Add forgiveness. Add redemption. Add welfare. Add security. Add prosperity. Add rescue. Add help. Have you seen how the cake is looking? Zini now prepared this cake for use tomorrow and left it on her worktop for whoever she's prepared the cake for to come and look after the cake until she delivers it to the person tomorrow. She was paid for the cake. She paid for the ingredients of the cake. She knows how much went into putting that cake together. She knows what is at stake if she delivers a stale cake to the guy that ordered it. She knows that until the person who ordered it takes delivery of it, it must stay as fresh as it was when I produced it. So whatever she, mechanism she needs to put in place to preserve that cake whole and blameless until she delivers it to the guy that ordered it, she is duty bound to do it. It's not my business whether or not Zini had petrol in her gen. It's not my business whether or not they've not given them light for two months. It's not my business whether the preservative is not available in what market. You have to go and get it in Lagos in, uh, or Balende. It's not my business. My business is when it's time for you to deliver my cake, deliver my cake whole and blameless. Because I know how much I have invested into this cake. The chocolate cannot melt. The cream cannot go off. The berries cannot start to go ferment. It cannot happen because I, my integrity is at stake. So I preserve this on account of the makeup of the product that have established its quality that determines why I must preserve it. So I took time to establish for you, son of God, the ingredients that make up your salvation cake. What soteria means. How much is packaged in that product? Jesus paid for you. He paid for the Father. He paid to the Father for you. And he has to present you to the Father. It's not time yet for the presentation. Jesus himself does not know the time. He says no one knows. Except the Father. So Jesus is standing by. Interceding for you. And waiting for the bell to be rung. Sorry, trumpet, Abby. To be rung. So that Jesus can now supply the cake that he spent eternity baking. With this colossal value of ingredients that have gone into it. Jesus is there doing nothing. 
except preserving this cake. It can't go bad. It can't afford to go bad. The manufacturer cannot take the chance of allowing the product preserve itself. He cannot. He cannot. Salvation is God's gift to man. It doesn't cost you anything. It shouldn't cost you anything. If salvation is costing you anything, then it's not a gift anymore. It's God's gift. He's responsible for it. The quality of what God did is important. One. Two. The participation of man in the picture is important. We just talked about the quality of what God did, right? And we've just said the nature of the ingredients determine the quality of the product. The nature of the ingredients determine the quality of the product. Can we look at the nature of some of the ingredients in our salvation package? Just for you to see the nature. Ecclesiastes 3.14. The nature of his righteousness, right? You know nature speaks to the makeup of something, right? The nature of the ingredients. Look at this beautiful text. I know that whatever God does, it shall be forever. Nothing can be added to it, sir. And nothing taken from it. I know that whatever God does, except it's not God that did it. But if God did it, it is forever. Nothing can be added to it. Nothing. And nothing can be taken from it. Psalm 89 and verse 2. Psalm 89 and verse 2. For I have said, watch this, mercy shall be built up Forever, your faithfulness you shall establish in the very heavens. Your mercy shall be how? Have we seen the nature of the ingredients of our salvation? Psalm 100 verse 5. For the Lord is good. His mercy is everlasting. And his truth endures. To The nature of the ingredients determine the quality. Yeah? We're exploring the nature of the ingredients of our salvation now, right? It's, salvation is a gift from who? So who, who is the ingredients of our salvation? Yes, God, right? All of it comes from him. It's a gift of God, the free gift of God. So it calls to question the nature of God. Are you, are you getting it? The quality of salvation calls into question the quality of God, who is the ingredients of our salvation. Make sense? Lamentation 3, 22 and 23. Lamentations 3, 22 and 23. Through the Lord's mercies, we are not consumed because his compassions fail not. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. Did you see that? Great is your faithfulness. Numbers 23, 19. You see how many scriptures were shown? And we won't even go through all. The list is inexhaustible. Numbers 23, 19. Numbers 23 and 19. God is not a man that he should lie, nor a son of man that he should repent. Has he said, and will he not do? Or has he spoken, and will he not make it good? Has he said, I give you eternal life and cannot make it eternal? Has he promised you everlasting life and cannot deliver on his word? It's not a man. It's not your earthly father that is only nice to you when you are nice to him. Not your earthly father that when you take first, my son, my son, you came last to say your child, see your son. When you're good, you're your one parent's son. When you're bad, you're the other parent's son or daughter. Does it happen to anybody? 
have you, have you seen your daughter? Have you seen your daughter? You just know something's wrong. Is your daughter back? What is the matter now? Have you seen my dear daughter? Ah. Uh, so we think God is like that. But every good and perfect gift comes from above. From the father of light. In whom there is no variableness. The, word in the Greek word for variableness suggests that he's not whimsical. He's not tossed around. He's stable. In whom there's no variableness or shadow of turning. That's the nature of the ingredients of your salvation. Isaiah 40 and 8. Isaiah 40 and 8. The grass withers. The flower fades. But the word of God stands. 1 Peter 1 and 25. 1 Peter 1 and 25. But the word of the Lord endures forever. You seen the? You seen that? Now this word is the word by which the gospel was preached to you. So the quality of the gospel is forever. James 1.17 Every good and every perfect gift is from above and comes down from the father of lights in whom there is no variation or shadow of turning. Variation there is the word paralage from which you get the English word parallel. It means there's no fecal, there's no turning to the left, there's no turning to the right, no variation, no variableness. Straight. He's not random. He's not whimsical. He's not fecal. And you have his image by the way. That's just a by the way. So you too cannot be random, you cannot be whimsical, you cannot be fickle. You cannot be unsteady. That's not the image of God. You got it from somebody else. It's not, it's not your image. Lose it. Lose it. You didn't get that from God. Lose it. Get rid of it. Dismiss it. Because God is a paralage God. Paralage means no change, mutation, fickleness. It's, it's, not, it's not with God. So if God does anything, it is without variableness. You can't alter it. We have seen the nature, right? God is forever. God is eternal. God is everlasting. God is not fickle. God is not variable. God is not whimsical. And everything he does springs from the same attributes. Whatever God does cannot be different from his character. Whatever God does cannot be different from his nature. Whatever God does cannot be different from his makeup. It is his makeup that gives life and, and quality to whatever he does. Is that correct? If that's not the case, then the quality of anything God does must be doubted. If God is not making what he's making from himself, then we must doubt the quality. But if God is making what he's making from himself, then the qualities are short. Salvation is a makeup of God. Salvation is an act of God. Salvation is God's idea. Salvation is entirely God's making. And the ingredients of salvation are all him. What does that say about the quality of your salvation? If God is eternal, and we saw that anything the Lord does, Ecclesiastes 3, is forever, because God is forever. So whatever he does is a reflection of his qualities. Right? And the ingredients of your salvation, your salvation is a product of God. Your salvation is a cake that God baked. And if God baked the cake, the cake consists of ingredients of the God kind. Ingredients of the God kind. Ingredients that are God. If God is not fecal, God is not whimsical, God is not random, God is not variable, God is forever, he's eternal, he's everlasting, what kind of cake will he bake? Or else he will be a cheat to produce a product that is not reflection of his nature. Then he would have acted in variableness. He would have had a shadow of turning. But because he does not have it, everything he does is forever. His mercy is forever. 
That's why we're saying your mercy endureth forever. So what then is the quality? If he's eternal, what is the quality of your salvation? If you can lose it, does he really have no variableness? If you can spoil it yourself before it gets to the person that ordered it, doesn't that make you more powerful than Jesus? That he made a kick. You now came and spoiled it. Because you felt like. Because you felt like you can. You just feel like one Jerry. Show up under the cake and then just bust from outside. Spoil it. That makes you more powerful than Jesus. One. Two. That also makes you able to spoil any part of God's plan at any point in time or eternity. It means you can spoil or alter any part of God's plan at any point in time or eternity. God can plan all he wants to plan from the foundation of the earth. You can just come and just spoil it. God does not have to now rearrange his plans, remix his plans, plan again. Because as omniscient as he is, he doesn't know what you're about to do. As all-knowing as God is, when you plan to shoot catapult into the cake, God didn't see it. So he left the cake there where you can spoil it. And then told you, my friend, whatever you do with the cake, that's your business. Me, I just know that when I come back on the last day, I have a cake to deliver. If a hedge is required, he builds it. If a guard dog is required, he employs it. If an Uber is necessary to deliver it, he rents it. If he needs to buy the delivery truck that is cool and chill, so he buys it. Whatever he needs to do, it is his duty to preserve you blameless unto that day. Otherwise, he has variableness. He's a paralage God. He has bipolar, multiple polar disorder. He speaks to the heart of who God is. If he's not constant enough to make his product a reflection of his nature. His product has to be a reflection of his nature. Everything God does is forever. So how can salvation not be if it is an act of God? If it's not a doing of God? If it's a doing of God, then it is forever. It has to reflect the nature of God. Are you still here? Now here's where the argument now kicks in. So we'll start to look at arguments against the forever nature of your salvation. Do you understand? We'll look at the arguments. We'll look at the scriptures that seem to be against it. We'll look at the schools of thought that are against it. We'll look at you know, the, the, the continuing sin argument. We'll look at the fairness argument. If I can do whatever I like and go to, I can abdicate the, 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 the Lord and still, like Peter, and still be saved, then why should I even bother to even keep my faith in the Lord? That's a very strong argument. There's the license to sin argument. If you tell people that they have been saved, and that they have grace abounding. They will sin all that they like. That's the license to sin argument. There's the continue in sin argument. Why will anybody feel the need to change and become better when they know that all their sins have been forgiven? It's all those arguments, right? We'll look at the arguments one after the other. Lay out all the arguments. Look at evidence for and against. And then we'll now pick the arguments one after the other and close them in the light of scripture. This concludes this message. Thank you for listening, and we hope it has been a blessing to you. For inquiries and further information, please send us an email to info at the or visit our social media platforms.